Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. All right. Hi. Welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, joined as always by medievalist Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. Despite being at best uh, sort of an agnostic Jew, I've been interested for a long time in the ways that people approach and dedicate themselves to the divine in their religions. Uh, for example, in Judaism, scholars analyze texts very deeply and in unexpected ways in order to understand the true meaning behind them. Um, if you've seen the m- movie Pi by Darren Aronofsky, uh, where one character talks about how letters are assigned numerical values and the sums thus created have mystical meanings. Um, That's one way. Uh, Other religions use petitionary prayer, speaking in tongues. They make offerings of animals or ritual foods to deities. Uh, They might become possessed by a spirit or deity during a trance state. Um, Today we're going to talk about something that seems unusual in modern times, which is anchorites. These these were people who basically became hermits, but instead of living out in the desert like Ben Kenobi, they lived in small cells usually attached to churches. I have to say, when we started researching this, I felt like it was really weird, but as we've been in quarantine for, what, a month and a half now... (laughs) It feels, I feel more of a kinship with them uh, to a certain extent. We are all hermits now. Yes, we all feel this very deeply. So let's start by talking about medieval practices of uh, enclosure. I guess we have hermits and anchorites are kind of two different flavors of the same Yes. genre. Yep. Do genres have flavors? I'm not... <laughs> I'm mixing my metaphors. Well, I love the fact, first of all, that everyone kind of knows what this is like now, right? To live in enclosed an enclosed space. Although, of course, you know, whether it's an apartment, a house, many people have backyards, at least. Um, And technically, we can go out. Yes. But that idea of sort of self-imposed enclosure, right? So there are laws shelter in place and so on. But really, it is sort of self-imposed, right? We have been told to stay inside. Yeah. And that that's something we discussed last time, of course, quarantine with the plague, that the Middle Ages did really sort of, for modern purposes, invent. Um, They didn't truly invent it. But the idea that it helped with disease is something that they tried when the plague initially came. We talked about this last time, right? And then um, it didn't work, of course. It was too late, which is the same thing that happened with us here, really. Um... But they kept trying it, and frequently there were places that did pretty well, right? You heard the plague was coming, everyone shut down and quarantined. So that sense of isolation is definitely something the Middle Ages was aware of, and that they practiced. The sense here, of course, is um, far, far more extreme. And um, one of the interesting things is that it is still practiced, the same way that there are still nuns. And bunks, of course. Um, and of course, you discovered this, mm-hmm. right? You looked up some modern anchorites. Yeah. Well, I saw one woman who died in the mm-hmm. 1990 or so. She had she had been an anchorite since like the mm-hmm. mid 40s, which honestly, that's a yes. really long time to yeah. uh, today. Wow, it you know, tends maybe to be a little more. Um, 
open in the sense of that you would be enclosed in in a house, for example, right? Or in a one-room apartment or something mm-hmm. that is small but is still functional, right? You would have modern plumbing, right. et cetera. Because initially some of these, these anchorites were yes, in, like, it, one room, right? And they had, like, a slit to get food and a window to look at maths. Yes, this is essentially what we'll talk about, um, that you'd be enclosed in a cell. Some Some are described as basically as a prison cell today, about as big, sometimes even smaller, right? Some of the women maybe can't fully lie down or some. These are the extremes, of course, but... Um, and theoretically, you were allowed a cat. This is sort of famous. Um, so the windows in Norwich, um, these are much, the windows are much more modern. They are not at all contemporary mm-hmm. to Julian of Norwich. Um, but they show her with a cat. And this is sort of one of those famous um, things that, right, you were allowed a cat basically because of vermin, right? That there was a level beyond which you were not expected to go. So being sort of eaten by mice at night was not something you were expected mm-hmm. to do, or rats. I think it would have to be a pretty small cat, though. Like, my my cat weighs 13 pounds. <laughs> you might not want him in your tiny, like, I can't fully lie down type of cell. Right. Um, and of course, they could come and go through the window. Um, and it, of course, they were also companionship, right? Um, is one of the, the fun things about this. But but that element. Um so to begin, yes, that's sort of the beginning. To begin at the real beginning, the interesting thing about medieval enclosure, which goes beyond, as I said, sort of ideas of quarantine, which also existed, the practice as we think of it begins with a group of men who become known as the Desert Fathers. And the first, or the person who's usually set up to be the first, is St. Anthony. Um, this is in Egypt, so this is the desert in Egypt. This is at the very sort of beginnings of Christianity. So Anthony is sort of circa 250 to, you know, 350 or something, right? That's his century that he's in. And this um, sense of leaving the town. So hermits, and eventually there's a distinction drawn, although a lot of these terms are thrown around all over the place. So, the, but the distinctions nonetheless do exist in medieval thought as well, even if the terminology can be sort of mixed up. Um, that hermits left. Hermits are in the desert or the forest. They're in places mm-hmm. that are uninhabited and impenetrable. Um, and so they leave civilization, right? They leave human contact. They go away. They live by themselves. Um, so is this related to the Christ wandering in the desert for 40 days? Are they, in some sense, trying to reenact that? Yes, absolutely. And this is a really sort of important point, that the idea is essentially a kind of transformation, right? That by doing this, you are transforming yourself. And um, one of the things we'll sort of talk about as we go through, there's a lot of imagery of the person who's solitary or enclosed, um, the work that they're doing. So, um, fighting demons, for example, um, these can be sort of figurative, (laughs) um, like one's own demons, um, but of course they can be very literal, right? We absolutely get it, which is the same thing, right? The temptation, the temptation of St. Anthony actually is, um, 
absolutely parallels what happens to Christ, right? Satan shows up and tempts him. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens to St. Anthony. Um, and Hieronymus Bosch has a fantastic, wonderful painting. <laughs> That's, you know, one of his bizarro yes. paintings um, of this. So hopefully we can link to that in the notes. Um, yes, we can definitely do that. Yeah. But Bosch is always worth looking at, <laughs> I think. Fantastic. Oh, gosh. Um, and I teach him in funny places because he's mentioned by Antarto, Theater of Cruelty. In theater and it's double. He sort of views, you know, this as a like the audience in a Bosch painting, right? Theater cruelty. Anyway, um, so this this is very much what what Anthony is doing. He's out in the desert. He does get tempted. You know, all these things happen. Yeah. Um, and that is the goal to become closer to Christ by following in his footsteps, which is an idea we'll talk more about in future episodes, but that's a very common thing, right? To follow in his footsteps. We talked a little bit last time, I think, about how priests do that, um, and monks, and the ways in which priests and monks do it differently, although that the way they do it mm-hmm. becomes more and more similar as the Middle Ages go on in some ways. Uh, right? Priests have to not get married anymore after a thousand, and so on. Um, the year, one thousand. And so this idea of, right, being solitary, trying to be closer to God by following in Christ's footsteps. Um, but also the idea that being here, you might fight literal demons, right? You will certainly fight figurative demons, um, but you don't have any distractions. So you have to only pay attention to God um, and your own sort of inner thoughts. <laughs> Essentially, right? The point is sort of to transform yourself and there end up being legends about Anthony, but also about the men who follow him, which is why they're known as the Desert mm-hmm. Fathers, right? He almost he basically ends up with this community of men out in the desert um, doing this, trying this. and um, But all living hermetically and not speaking to each other right. as much as they can? Yes. Or at all. I mean, they're sort of, some of them are, dis- you know, distant. The desert's yeah. a big place. But the idea being very much to try to transform yourself in many ways, literally. Um, so the legends sort of talk about this sense that they are, in many ways, transfigured, which is something else, of course, that happens to Christ, the transfiguration, right? Where his, um, one of the only times that his immortal self, <laughs> right, the God part of him, is sort of seen on Earth. Um, and the idea was, um, partly, that after everything is over, right, Revelations, the Apocalypse, after all that happens and the world ends and everyone is judged for the last time, which is something really important that we'll come back to in future episodes. Um, but essentially, right, people are in heaven and purgatory and hell. Um, and at the end of all things, people who are in heaven get to stay there. <laughs> um, okay. People in purgatory have finished out their time at this point and gotten into heaven. And the question is the people in hell. Is that how long you have to stay in purgatory is like until the end of the world? Or does it depend on what you did? Not necessarily. No, it okay. depends on what you did. But, you know, if you if you died pretty close to the end of the world... Time's up. You see, like, yeah. you have to... Right. You have to figure by out the bell. <laughs> but, yes. But essentially, anyone who's in purgatory will get into heaven. It's okay. just a matter of time. But the, So the real question is people in hell. And this is something I said, this is for future episodes we're not going to... We don't have to talk time. about. Okay. But we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit next time. Because we're going to talk next time about mysticism, and some of the people we're going to mention at the end we'll really talk more about next time. So Julian of Norwich, we will touch on her views on this next time. Um, 
but particularly uh, this sort of idea that uh, after all of this, people are judged for the next time. If you're in hell, is it possible that anyone who is in hell will be judged differently at the end of the world? Hard to know. Um, but you have this sense of this final judgment, which is somehow potentially different. And then everyone goes bodily to the place where they will be for eternity. So your body, your soul and your body rejoin. Ah. Uh. And that, that transformation is sort of the thing that is being sought after. So the, the Desert Fathers are attempting to sort of transfigure themselves into the body and soul that they will be after the final judgment. And there's a lot of discussion about the body that we'll get into more and how, because these practices are very, very, very mm-hmm. heavily ascetic, right? And that is ascetic in the sense of um, hardcore <laughs> famine and, you know, whipping and all of these things, right? Punish the body. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about sort of the sense that they hated the body, right? The flesh is bad. The flesh is evil. But that also isn't entirely true because you are going to get your body back, So right now, your body is a prison for the soul. Foucault comes back with this in Discipline and Punish, where he says, um, right, in fact, the soul is seen as being imprisoned by the body, but actually the body is imprisoned by the soul, which is great. That we, right, that we sort of imprison ourselves by what we think and believe. The common theme in his work. Yes. Um, But it's a brilliant turnabout for anyone who has studied the Middle Ages, because... There is that sense. On the one hand, you're trying to sort of get rid of the flesh. The soul is trapped by the flesh. The soul wants to escape and join God, right? Only death will do that. Well, suicide, of course, is a sin. So you cannot actually destroy the flesh and just let your soul out. That is a sin. Right. Also, um, you you can't actually hate your body, which is important, um, because you will get it back. So there's this really weird, almost antagonistic thought process going on that on the one hand, your soul is trapped by your body and you have to sort of punish it with all these ascetic practices to transform yourself spiritually. But at the same time, you have to treasure your body as the vessel that after the last judgment will contain your soul in the place that you end up, which is hopefully heaven. And so... You have the flesh that is both evil and terrible and sinful, and simultaneously it is potentially going to get to visit heaven, right? So how do you deal with this body? Um, And the idea is to, through these practices, to transform it along with your soul spiritually so that they will both reach this point um, that essentially you could be directly transported into heaven, right? Not just spiritually with your soul, but also physically as you are. Um, and that's kind of the end point of that practice. Yay. <laughs> so that's the Desert Fathers. <laughs> there were some Desert Mothers, too, eventually, weren't there? Yes. Well, women, this is sort of the other fun part, is that um, men, of course, start this off um, more or less. But women become a huge part of this tradition. Um, and as uh, sort of Christian philosophy takes over, women are seen as really at the core of the way this is theorized. And perhaps the most interesting part of this is that a lot of it probably comes from Plato. Wow. Unexpected. Right. Well, because the Greek world, right? So, of course, we've got Judaism Mm -hmm. and Middle East, 
Um, and originally you have to be Jewish to become Christian. And then eventually it's decided that Christianity is its own thing. You can just become Christian. Right. So this all happens fairly quickly. Um, and we have the fact that of course the Hebrew Bible, right? The old Testament is joined by the new Testament, which is written in Greek. So this is part of the Greek speaking world. Um, and very quickly, of course, it will all become Latin, but that takes a a few hundred years. So, while it's all Greek speaking, right, the origins of Christianity are really in this, um, yes, Middle Eastern, yes, Jewish, but really Greek speaking philosophical world. And so Plato and Aristotle, um, their works are lost for a lot of the Middle Ages, honestly, mm-hmm. but their names persist and their thoughts absolutely persist. Um, and the big one, Plato is huge. Um, so probably sort of the, the most obvious aspects of this are things like through a glass darkly, right? So for Plato, we have forms versus ideas, famously, Mm -hmm. right? He's got his sort of continuity. So the ideal is the highest form, um, sort of the divine form. He doesn't necessarily say divine, but we could, you know, this is Christianity. So Christianity, right, there's the divine. Sure. And then so for Plato, right, that's the ideal. And then you come down once the idea. So what can you imagine? What can you see in your head? And then there's the thing you can sort of explain to others or the thing you can make, right? And then you have art, right? Plato hated art. He thought it was like the furthest <laughs> from the ideal. But this is a sense of right forms versus ideas, right? So you see, you see a tree, right? The tree is nothing like an ideal tree, right? That sort of gives perfect fruit and is always flowering and whatever, right? And of course, the ideal tree... Who knows, right? We can't quite get there. Um, but it is much, much philosophized, right? The tree of life, for example. So we have this sense of how do we get to that divine form? And so, of course, the allegory of the cave and the Republic is um, similar, right? This sense that you only see the shadows on the wall thrown by the fire. And what if you could get out of the cave and really see things as they are? Um, so in Corinthians is where we get this famous, right? Um, Paul's letter. So we get the, the direct quote, I think, um, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Um, so that's first Corinthians 13. And we have this sort of sense, right? That one day you'll actually get to heaven which is the ideal plane, right? The divine plane, Mm -hmm. the outside of the cave, right? Life is the cave and heaven is the outside. Is there a way to get there during life? So that's always the question. Um, And hermits, the ascetic lifestyle, ultimately is seen as sort of a vehicle to try and get there. Sure. Right. I think that, well, a lot of different people have tried that. Actually, I'm just thinking of uh, Siddhartha in the in the Herman Hess oh, novel, course. but but it's true. <laughs> like he did try ascetic practices, and you know, it's not exactly the same kind of bodily mortification, but it's similar. Like you know, being really cold and out in the woods and whatever, you know. Yep. Yes. Yeah, and the thing is um, that. Asceticism always, right? It's not the end in itself. It's that goal of transformation. Yeah. 
And so here, this is one of the ways in which being a hermit differs from sort of other types of a monastic enclosure or separation, um, in that those can vary widely. They're often mm-hmm. community-based. Um, sure, you, you work together, you make honey or beer together, or cheese, like... Right. Um, and asceticism might be part of it, but... And certain orders are sort of more ascetic than others, certainly. Mm-hmm. Not the um, ones who are making champagne in France, but, you know, right. some some of them are pretty ascetic. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I think we talked last time, and uh, maybe the yeah, first episode even... Yeah. Francis wanted more ascetic. Some of the Benedictines were... Yes. A lot less. <laughs> yes. And that is 100%, right? Sort of the things that go on in monastic conversations. Mm-hmm. Or maybe um, it would be it would be more accurate to say that no matter what rules you started with, people often observed somewhat of a downward slide from uh, ascetic to non-ascetic. Yes. Yeah. And that's why... Um, you know, today even, for you have, like, order um, the Cistercians, right? There's the, the mm-hmm. order of strict observance, specifically. And that that's supposed to, right, that's the point, <laughs> right? We can't backslide because we are specifically strict observance, right? But there is that sort of sense that community enclosure is different. Um, and monastic rule is potentially different. And one of the things that this brings up then, right, is, first off, is it possible to be a hermit in a city? And that's where we get anchorites. Um, This is, as I said, terminology sort of can be finicky, but for modern purposes, and even to some extent in the Middle Ages, um, there is definitely, definitely um, a clear sense of difference between those who go out, who really leave civilization to be isolated, and those who stay in a community, but nonetheless isolate themselves, right? Um, so to be an anchorite or an anchoress means to be in civilization. So you don't leave, you don't get to go out to the desert, you don't get to go out to the forest, and you have to enclose yourself in, in civilization. Um, so that aspect, um, particularly, you tend to get women. And one of the reasons, of course, is because it's much harder for women to go live by themselves in any literal sense in the forest or the desert. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, um, danger, obviously. Um, but also, in as much as women don't necessarily have the resources or are not given the resources, or people would stop them from doing it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so you absolutely have a sense of um, the ways in which this legacy, although men do this as well, um, that women sort of embrace this part of the legacy that you could potentially be walled up in society how much permission did you need to do something like this a lot or even (laughs) even to join like a nunnery instead of getting married right well a ton i mean that's part of the problem so to join a nunnery basically you need money to join a monastery you need money right which is why, and it depends again on the monastery, right? So some are known as the haven of nobility, right? So again, the Benedictines, for example, mm-hmm. you would have to have a very, very substantial dowry to join. If you're a man, um, you could be a tertiary third order monk, for example. And what that means is you're probably a lay brother. So you, you don't maybe sort of take official orders. Um, you aren't educated. Mm-hmm. You get to join, though, um, and you are doing all the manual labor. 
nuns don't usually have that option in the same way, right? Um, there's much more of a tendency for it to be assumed, right, that men are doing the manual labor for them. <laughs> um, and so women who want to be tertiaries are usually very, are still usually wealthy women. Um, and in that sense, it can mean that they want to join, but sort of be out in the world, right, a more active life. Okay. Like the way nuns today go out and proselytize or work at hospitals and... Yes. Yeah. Catherine of Siena is a great example. Oh, um, okay. So... I think we saw her head one time. Yes. I love it. Yeah, her head is in <laughs> Siena and her body is in Rome. Her her heart, right? right. But um, she's great. The Avignon Pap- Papacy came up um, last episode, at least in the notes. Maybe yes, just in the yeah. notes, but yeah. Because of uh, somebody had sent word back to his family from working in, in Avignon. Yes. During the- yes, one of the musicians in the court. Um, and Catherine is sort of given credit for being one of the people who helped end the Avignon papacy and bring them back to Rome. Yeah. But she's a Dominican tertiary. And it's, again, right, it's this sense of women have so many more restrictions against them. And needs so mm-hmm. much more permission. And so for most women, and this is something we'll talk about as we get into the actual women, um, in their lives, and this is sort of official, this is lives with a capital L, right? Their vitae. This is sort of their capital, right? The biography that's written of you to try and make you a saint um, is a life. It's a saint's life. So capital L, oh, capital okay. V, if we're talking Latin. Um, and it is official it's basically official it's an official biography that's try to get you sainted and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't it's sort of depending on circumstances of course and politics and all of these things mm-hmm. but one of the sort of overriding things in most female lives um whatever they did is at the beginning there's the discussion of how their parents wanted them to get married and how they wouldn't and um you know, to what extent did their parents try to force them? And if they did get married, what was their husband like? How did they convince him to, you know, lead an ascetic life with them? Um, or, you know, what what did he do? Um, how did they escape? Um, all of this sort of stuff, right? And it's the constant, constant, constant reminder of the extent to which women just clearly didn't have the options that men did. Um, so if women, you had the money you had to have to join a nunnery because you couldn't just become sort of a labor, manual labor tertiary in the same way that mm-hmm. a man could. Women find other ways to sort of get around that. So things like um, unofficial orders of religious women. This is something we'll talk about next time in mysticism. The um, sort of women religious of the Middle Ages and how women who aren't as rich as, or sometimes just have their own ideas and don't want to be part of the hierarchy of the nunnery or don't want to adhere to that rule or whatever it is, um, form their own communities, begins. So there are things that women try to do. But to be an anchoress officially, um, there were women, we'll talk about some of them, who are enclosed unofficially for a while until they finally find ways to become officially enclosed. But to be officially enclosed, you absolutely, like all the hierarchical men in town had to agree to it. Um, It's an absolutely official act to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, so this comes back to this idea of enclosure. The idea for women, for everybody, but particularly for women, um, is sort of what enclosure means. So the sense of separation, as I said, that goes beyond a monastic separation. And 
enclosure for everyone, of course, means seclusion, as I said, sort of to get away from distractions, to transform yourself. But for women, there's especially the sense of purity, right? Um, and you didn't have to be a virgin. There are women who may have been widowed, had already had children. They convert to the religious life sort of when they can. Their husband has died, right? That would be potentially when they had money, too. If, yes. If they were left mm -hmm. something in the will. Yeah. And so they might be allowed to do this. But that sense of, right, so purity. So you are either maintaining or reclaiming um, your purity by sort of walling yourself up. <laughs> you are symbolizing uh, simultaneously the sort of integrity, right, of your chastity. You are symbolizing the impenetrability of your chastity, right? You are also using this symbolism as, this is something we'll go into next time, um, but bridal mysticism is a big one um, in the Middle Ages. And this is, um, the soul was seen as the bride of Christ. Okay. So this is true of nuns, of a lot of people. Monks yeah. use this as well. Monks see themselves sort of spiritually as the bride of Christ. I mean, this is something that is very widespread. Oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah. So we'll get into all of this okay. more next time as an actual sort of mystic practice. But in as much as the cell, so you're enclosed in the cell. Um, it obviously, there are sort of implications to being in prison. You're punishing yourself right in the world now to sort of try and get yourself into heaven later. Um, the office of enclosure uh, included usually the office of the dead, and you received last rites, so it was like you were being buried. Wow. Um, so you're kind of getting an early work on purgatory in your, in your lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also this brilliant sense of this cell as the sort of bower for the bride of Christ, right? The soul to rest in. Um, and if you can prepare your soul accordingly... Right, the bridegroom will come, um, and so there's this sense also of this sort of walled-off bridal chamber that parallels frequently in a lot of these women's lives the fact that some of them were trapped in a bridal chamber with a very physical, earthly husband that they didn't want. Right, and so later, sometimes much, much later in life, um, and sometimes they escape the husband and they get away sooner. Um, they are allowed to sort of wall themselves off and wait for the bridegroom that they want. Um, but it means that there's this really interesting comparison between seclusion, right, integrity, enclosure, impenetrable, right, virginity has to be impenetrable, right, there are all these phallic metaphors. Um, and at the same time, it is also this sort of bower where you're waiting for your bridegroom, um, and bridal mysticism, as well as sort of the love of Christ, which is this whole sort of aspect of mysticism we will definitely cover in our next episode, um, can be very graphic, Right? So there's this very interesting comparison between these two ideas um, and who you might be <laughs> um, waiting for and while also who you are avoiding. Right? Who you are impenetrable to and who you can be penetrated by. <laughs> and as I said, this exists for men as well. Right? It is not just for women. So that's a sort of another very, very interesting aspect. Um, of all of this. So there's that, that element. <laughs> but the, the element of death as well, right? You meet, of course, your soul after death will meet the bridegroom, mm -hmm. right? So you are preparing. So hopefully, right, if you're a really good anchoress, you'll meet him now during life. 
Yeah, and a lot of them absolutely have visions, you know, so. In like, yeah, in like a mystical sense of believing that they're visited by Christ. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like all of this is made a little bit weirder because it was traditional to like bury them under their cells when they died, wasn't it? Sometimes, yeah. For some of them, yeah. yeah. But that also meant, right, you were being buried in the church, which was a high point of hmm. honor, right? Oh. Because in the churchyard, churchyard is filled up, and then your bones would sort sure. of move to the charnel house or something, right? Um, people who are buried in the church, you're there. I mean, because they probably have to dig up part of the church to get you out or whatever, right? Um, so they're not going to move you. And who's going to compete? Okay. Nobody's going to compete. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, you want to be there. Also, there's a sense that you, again, that's part of sainthood. Um, you haven't been canonized yet, presumably, but um, you have sort of, by your acts, sanctified this place. And if you become a saint, right, they're sort of pre-preparing the shrine in the church. Um, people will come mm -hmm. visit the shrine, and they'll pray to you, and you'll perform miracles. Um, and so it becomes sort of the center of your cult, um, which is the official term for a saint's followers, <laughs> um, is a cult. So that's one of the big sort of things about symbolism. Um, one of the other things I said is that there is also a sense um, of the really hard work that goes into being an anchoress, right? You're fighting demons, you're fighting all this stuff. You know, it shouldn't be thought of that you're sort of lounging around. Um, it's hard work just to be in that cell, of course, right? Something I think we can mm -hmm. all identify today. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. And so the sort of really hard work, there's a sense for women as well um, that they are that they are potentially behaving like men, this is always a positive sense, right? For women, women are sort of a step down. Because they're working, working hard. They're doing, they're fighting all the good, yeah. Well, they're doing sort of spiritual work on a male level, right? <laughs> right. Women have to move up the hierarchy. You know, women have to be like men, and then they can sort of become like hmm. um, a sort of heavenly figure, right? You have to work up that hierarchy. I see. So men are sort of ostensibly one step closer. Um, and this is because women are identified with the flesh, Right, so w the body, right, the flesh is evil, the soul is extraordinary. Women are identified with the flesh, and of course, men with the soul. Except, of course, in the case when the soul is the bridegroom of Christ, or the bride of Christ, sorry, and Christ is the bridegroom. <laughs> um, there we are. But, right, but otherwise, the soul really, there's the sort of sense that the soul is masculine on some level, um, and the flesh is feminine. Um, and that also goes to the fact that women were thought to provide the, were actually thought to provide sort of the flesh um, for, you know, humanity. Right. So, for example, the Virgin Mary is the source of Christ's body. His soul, of course, comes from God, right, his father. <laughs> uh, but the body is female. Um, and so that sense of right flesh is female versus the mind or the spirit that is masculine. Um, mm -hmm. so even if the soul is kind of the bride of Christ, right, you got to keep all these things sort of heteronormative, except frequently they aren't, which again is something we'll talk about in the future. Um, but the soul is the bride of Christ doesn't mean, right, the soul yet is also sort of the masculine side of this dichotomy, flesh, soul. Um, that being said, uh, Hildegard of Bingen wrote this fantastic musical, The Ordo, hmm. um, in which the soul... The Latin word for soul is feminine, anima. Um, but for her, the soul is absolutely feminine. <laughs> the soul is trying to escape its prison, which of course is the body, and get to God, right? But she absolutely, this is, she uses the language kind of as an excuse, right? 
but she absolutely does see the soul as female. Um, so she sort of switches that on its head. Mm-hmm away from the usual dichotomy where women have to really get rid of sort of the flesh. You have to be ascetic. Women don't really have a choice, right? You have to punish the body because you have to sort of get closer to your soul. And women as sort of flesh are further away from that, right? So to get to your soul in the first place, you have to sort of punish your body. And then the more you do that, the more masculine you become. Yay. Um, and you also have a lot of stories of women. Some of the women will talk about, you know, that their points, um, Christine of Marquette dresses up as a guy to escape um, her house and her marriage. <laughs> um, and you mentioned, like, the Desert Mothers. Uh, one of the most famous um, is Theodore of Alexandra. And she, um, legend has it, lived as a monk, right? So she wasn't known to be a Desert Mother until after her death, right? Um, and this is actually famous. Um, I mean, this is sort of a famous thing about a number of women. I mean, there are a number of women out there. Um, in one of the Greek saints, um, Marina, who should possibly be St. Marinos, um, sometimes it's not clear, of course, modern sort of gender connotations, um, mm-hmm. whether these women dressed as men because they had to, right? They couldn't mm-hmm. do what they wanted to otherwise. You couldn't live as a monk otherwise. Or because they wanted to. Right? Did they see themselves as men? Or did they think of themselves as women disguised as men because they had to be? Um, but that sort of sense, right, that women had to sort of proving your masculinity was that step closer to proving that you were worthy of God. Um, and so an anchoress is sort of moving up that ladder. Um, one of the interesting things about this is that the models, as I said, as this sort of becomes a more popular life um, and the idea of a contemplative life as opposed to an active life becomes um, a more sort of interesting possibility in the Middle Ages. Um, monastic life, of course, has always been a bit of a mix of both. And there's a lot of controversy throughout the Middle Ages about whether or not a contemplative life is mm-hmm. actually also a Christian life, which is to say, did Christ advocate only an active life, basically helping others? Um, is a life that is solely contemplative equally valid? Um, and people argue about this a lot. You mentioned, I think, in a previous episode that they took the Christ as a carpenter idea very seriously. Yes, Christ, yeah, as a, mm-hmm. as a workman, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's here to do his work. <laughs> um, and you see that, you know, of course, different people think of it differently. Um, that's specifically sort of... Um, Right, the English mystery plays, as they're generally known, right, the cycle plays, view him this way. Um, but yes, that sense of Christ as a workman and the tools that he came to work with, right? So the idea that, um, yeah, that he sort of starts out as a workman, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then his work on the cross, right, is seeing all the sort of tools of his work. Um, and so the cross itself, the the nails, the, you know, the rooster, all these instruments of the passion that are really seen as the tools of Christ's work. There's an interesting way in which Mm -hmm. um, that idea, right, it's very active. It's it's absolutely very active, right? Prayer is important. It sustains you. And it does bring you close to God. But to what, how do you balance that with your active life? Right. 
Right. I mean, he was out there curing lepers and raising people from the dead and... Exactly. You know, stopping yeah. crowds from stoning women to death. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing, though, is that, of course, as with anything, there are going to be people who are just far more drawn to the contemplative life, right? They're not <laughs> um, sort of people people, right? <laughs> they are solitary people. <laughs> um, and they would yes. much rather sort of think about God and contemplate God and sort of get lost in the ideas and the philosophy. Um, not so interested maybe in going out and meeting lepers. Um, and so that conversation is one that is really important. Um, and one of the things that ends up happening is you have, uh, from people who are in favor of the contemplative life, looking at the Bible, um, you have the scene where Christ is with right Mary and Martha at their house. This is sort of the famous, you know, he's getting fed and um, Mary comes in and um, sobs at his, mm-hmm. dries, you know, sobs on his feet and dries his feet with her hair and all this stuff. Um, and so this is right. So that we have the Magdalene. The Magdalene is identified with most okay. Marys throughout the Bible, <laughs> um, unless it's specified as the Virgin. Now, she's not all of those Marys, and recent scholarship has said she's not. And actually, um, the Catholic Church recently sort of acknowledged that she's not all those Marys, and she's not, for example, she's not the prostitute um, who, who's forgiven, right? She'd previously been identified with all of these women. Um, and there's something that is historically accurate, of course, about not identifying her with all of those women. But there's something also very troubling about starting to divide them up again. Because one of the whole points of Mary Magdalene's arc is the ways in which she goes from being, for example, a prostitute through being basically the highest apostle of all of them, <laughs> even though she's a woman. Um, and she's really second only to the Virgin Mary, something else we brought up before. Um, and so that arc. Yeah. The fact that she could receive that degree of forgiveness and reform. Yes. Or, yeah. A hundred percent. As a woman. Right? And of course, prostitution in the flesh is, right? That's that. And she goes all the way, she goes, she arcs all the way to the other side. Right? Um, and so that, that arc is so important in the Middle Ages. Certainly to women, but really to everybody. And so the, taking that away from her and out of her story is in many ways um, a way essentially of sort of relegating people who used to have that arc back to the outskirts. Even if that's not the immediate intention, that's one of the things that it does. Um, so there's something sort of very unfortunate about that. And she, in the Bible, right, this is one of the things the contemplative life sort of points out, is that we have Martha, who's working really hard, right? She's the one who keeps going to the kitchen and bringing out the food, essentially, right? Um, so she's she's the active life. Martha is then seen as sort of the epitome of the active life. She is feeding Christ. She is trying to help him, right? She's doing all these things for him. The Magdalene is not helping your sister out at all, right? <laughs> she's just there <laughs> listening right so she is listening she is learning mm-hmm. at christ's feet which is her position then it's her position sort of at the cross she's at the foot of the cross right this becomes her sort of she is seen as the one at the foot of christ um and so that sense of her as a woman who gets that honored position she is seen as the model of the contemplative life and this is um sort of demonstrated 
in the Bible itself, right? In this fact that um, she is officially the first person he talks to after he's risen. And so before he talks to anyone else, even his mother, which the Middle Ages kind of hated, and some of them make up the story where in between he did go to his mother, and then he went to the Magdalene. <laughs> uh, this is, right, some of the plays and stuff do this. But okay. officially, right, she's the first person he talks to. So then she is to go tell the apostles that he is risen, which makes her the apostle to the apostles. Um, and there's a brilliant, brilliant book on this uh, by Catherine Jensen that's all about the Magdalene um, that we will cite in the notes, of course. Um, but the Magdalene then becomes not only, right, she started as the ultimate flesh, <laughs> she becomes the opposite, right, the sort of ultimate contemplative life. She was the one at his feet. Um, she is the one who is then favored with the gift of telling everyone, right, that he has risen. Um, and so her role compared to Martha's role, which is clearly lesser, right? Martha as the active life. So people who are in favor of the contemplative life see it as sort of the ultimate form of Christianity. But of course, people who are in favor of the active life do not agree. But because anchorises, anchorites, hermits, hermitesses, um, all clearly are in favor of the contemplative life, that's what they're doing. We are talking about that one today. Sure. So we're going to be on their side for today. <laughs> um, we're all testing out their lifestyle at the moment anyway, so... Exactly. Contemplation can lead to great things, really. You know? And one of the fun things is that we have... Um, <laughs> we have rules, right? Just like there are rules for official orders, there are rules for anchoresses oh. and anchorites. But the big ones we have are written to women. And this is also a reminder of how important it was for women... It absolutely also includes men. Men were anchorites. But again, men had so many more options that, and also, of course, they could go be hermits somewhere. Um, women really embraced this opportunity because it was a way for them to lead a really important religious life mm -hmm. and to sort of be acknowledged as an important religious figure. The sacrifices were clearly worth it on some level. So Elred of Riveau, British, sort of 1110 to 1167 or so, um, he's super famous, and we'll definitely talk about him again. He writes a rule for anchoresses that is apparently to his sister, mm -hmm. which is cool. And he sort of sets out the model of what a rule should be, essentially. I think we mentioned the Cistercians, uh, so he's Cistercian, <laughs> and... They're important, the Cistercians. They're super important. We'll definitely talk about them again when it comes to mysticism and so on. Um, and Elred himself is incredibly important. Um, but this text specifically, um, he writes this sort of letter to his sister, who's a recluse. The term recluse, by the way, is the one that is frequently used um, along with anchorists. But a recluse is for anyone who's sort of enclosed. It means enclosed. It comes from that the idea of being enclosed. Um... And the term is used in the Middle Ages. Um, sort of the big Latin dictionaries. Um, there's Ducange, who cites it. Um, and then the Dictionary of Medieval Latin from British sources um, also mentions it a few times. So it isn't widely used, but recluse is the, the term that sort of becomes used um, in modern scholarship um, for those who are enclosed, specifically. So Elred writes his his rule for his sister, and it's divided into three parts. Mm -hmm. And that same sort of tripart structure is followed by the Ankara Wissa, which is sort of early 13th century. 
which is again, right, the rule for anchoresses. Um, and written clearly for sort of presumably a number of women. And the structure is sort of the outer rule, which means regulations for daily life. So how do you actually live? What do you do? The inner rule, which is sort of the ascetic spiritual practice, right? And then Elred ends with a meditation um, and sort of devotion to Christ. And the Ankara also has this sort of third part um, that's sort of a meditation, um, but also the text that the Ankara is in has some lives of famous sort of saintly women as well that are maybe supposed to have served as examples. It's not clear to what extent they are all in the same text because they go together or just because they're compiled that way. But anyway, so those all have that sort of structure. Um, Richard Rolla, who we'll definitely talk about more in the future. <laughs> um, he's a hermit himself. Again, he's a great example of how um, men had more options than women. He sort of decided he was going to be a hermit and he became one. And, you know, he had Latin and he was educated. And so he wrote a lot of stuff. He's astonishingly influential. Um, but again, particular in England. England has this sort of outsized reputation for anchorites because of all the things I've just mentioned, right? Elred's rule for his sister, and then the Akronowissa, and then Richard Rolla, who wrote uh, The Form of Living for a woman, Margaret Kirby, who was enclosed. She was an anchorist. Mm -hmm. So England sort of gets this outsized reputation. They're definitely, it's important everywhere. But these texts become very famous. Um, and he also kind of follows this, this sense, right? The outer rule, the inner rule meditation. We have in this one, um, the outer rule, an example would be, right? Um, this is Akronowissa, I think, specifically. But um, everyone sort of follows this, as I said. So living your external life, right? How do you actually live? Um, so the senses, it's usually about, remember, depriving your senses. You're enclosed, you're supposed to be secluded. So don't go looking out your window all the time. Don't talk too much. And don't listen to what other people have to say. This isn't quite what they say. But don't listen to flattery or gossip or backbiting, right? Um, so, like, eye, mouth, ear, right? Sort of, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, basically. Yeah. Does that mean that you would have contact with the outside yes. world beyond just, like, a confessor or something like that? Yes. So this is the big part. Men, of course but women as well become incredibly famous. Um, they're sometimes described by modern scholars as tourist attractions. And this is one of the really fun things, is that next time we're going to talk a lot about Julian of Norwich, who I'll mention at the end of this. And one of our other really awesome, favorite, famous English women, Marjorie Kemp, went to visit Julian uh, and get some advice. Um, and that was sort of the idea, right? Anchoresses were women who were available um, as spiritual counselors. People went to them and talked to them. And a lot of men who were serving as spiritual advisors, some of them were very proud of this. Some of them were really nervous about this because this danger, right? Were women endangering themselves? Were they listening to too much gossip? Were they talking too much? Um, were they sort of falling to the flattery that they were important? Right? So there are all these sort of pitfalls for women who become famous anchoresses and tourists flock to them to get their advice. Um, does it sort of go against what an anchoress is supposed to be doing? Right? These are all the questions. Right. Um, so this we get to the inner rule, right? Soul, salvation, ascetic practices. Um, confess a lot. Master your flesh, but don't destroy it. Because remember this weird sort of simultaneous love-hate-your-body. Um, don't give way to sloth. Right? So you can't just lie around. 
Um, this is hard work, hard prayer, very little sleep, right? Always active, always active, always active in a contemplative sense. <laughs> this is the funny part about the contemplative life fighting it out with the active life is that one of the ways the contemplative life defends itself is by how active it is in the spiritual pursuit of God, right? And so Richard Rolla specifically, this is what his sort of final part is in his text, is really this defense sort of of the way of life. Um, it follows, um, he wrote a really, really, really famous treatise sort of on his own practice in Latin. It's the most famous thing he wrote. That we'll probably talk about next time, Vincenzo Memoris. Um, and this text that he wrote from Margaret Kirby borrows some from that, a little bit, of course, um, but is also clearly for her and sort of the outer and inner paths to God, <clears throat> how to preserve her purity, right? Her How to work on her love for Christ um, and why the contemplative life is superior because it gives a foretaste of heaven. So this is his sense. Um, and he is really invested in the love of Christ, which is why um, this kind of dovetails so well with mysticism, right? Being an anchoress, the prayer, the contemplation, of course, there are visions. All of these things sort of go together. Mm -hmm. So Margaret Kirby is sort of circa 1322 to 1391, 94. Um, and Richard Rolla writes for her probably sort of near the end of his life. He's 1300 to sort of 1349. Um, and we'll talk about him more next time. He himself is a lay hermit. So he's this really interesting guy who sort of has to claim his own authority. Nicholas Watson wrote a whole book that is literally sort of basically titled that. And so he he has sort of had this outsized influence on um, the way um, ingrates are thought of as being the sort of very English property. Uh, but they're not solely English. That being said, um, some other really famous people to mention, Christina of Marquiat, she's 1096 to sort of, or 1098-ish, uh, to about 1155. Um, and she is one of these women, as I said, she has this sort of story. Her parents want her to get married. They try and force her. They, like, lock her in the room and let her bridegroom in and let him, you know, and she, like, hides in the walls behind the tapestries and there's all this stuff. And one night, you know, she can't really escape him, so she just tells him stories all night and one of them's, you know, of, like, virgins and so on. St. <laughs> Cecilia on her wedding night trying to avoid her husband. Like, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Eventually she escapes. This is right. She sort of dresses man and hides herself under a cloak and she escapes on horses, you know, to this place where she's been sort of promised um, she can stay and she does. And then this other hermit who originally didn't believe in her, Roger, um, but does after he hears what she's done, allows her to come live in his cell. She's hiding out. She's the one who gets that cell that she can't lie down in. Um, she can't open it herself. Mm -hmm. And no one can know she's there. So people come visit the hermit Roger all day long. She's walled up in here all day long. She can't get out to go to the bathroom. Right? They're all there's. It's very physically horrific. There are all these sort of torments that are described that happen to her. Um, she lives there for like four years. Eventually, he dies and he gives her his hermitage. So she gets to be there for a while, um, and then eventually she sort of does form a community and gets to be a prioress of her own community. But that's what the, she has this sort of story, right? The comparison of that awful bridegroom and who does eventually release her for marriage i mean he goes away but um versus the the bridegroom she really wants right um so she's great uh and then julian of norwich 1343 to somewhere after 1416 we'll definitely talk about her next time she's fantastic and amazing and brilliant and as i said norwich cathedral currently has windows of her um because she's so awesome but in Germany, right, so Germany, I really mean German-speaking countries, because it's not necessarily Germany at all these days, um, but you get plenty of people, also in Italy, 
Right, so you do get anchoresses throughout, mm-hmm. but some other famous people worth mentioning. Uh, Margaret the Lame of Magdeburg, who served 1210 to 1250, um, and she would have been in Magdeburg about the same time as a far more famous mystic, Mechtild. Um, but Margaret the Lame becomes an anchoress. Uh, she is enclosed, and she is in, she is lame, um, and possibly has other physical ailments. So she, she already is in sort of great physical pain in her life. Um, and this is now seen as something that is sort of visited on her as a way to sort of, right, go through purgatory on earth. Right. So she has that sense. Um, and then Dorothea of Montau is absolutely worth mentioning, um, She's in what is now Poland, <laughs> uh, but was then sort of part of the German-speaking world. Um, and she, again, right, she's one of these women who, she is married. She has a lot of kids. Only one of them outlives her, though, I think. Hmm. She has a husband who's sort of alternately tolerant and abusive. And when he's abusive, he's kind of terrible, right? Um, and she tries to sort of talk him into going on pilgrimages um, in one of the Jubilee years. I think in 1390, she goes off on pilgrimage. He does go on some pilgrimages with her, and sort of horrible. Um, but then she gets home <laughs> from this one um, and finds him dead. Hurrah! And then she can finally sort of have a spiritual life. Um, she moves to a different city, Marion Werder, um, and there she finds a good spiritual advisor. She becomes enclosed and sort of does become a bit of a tourist attraction. People come to see her and hear her advice. And she has a life written of her, right? So she gets a full-on Vita, a biography, saint biography. And she's really interesting again, right? You have all of these women who have these different lives, right? Some of them have the money and the means to become anchoresses sooner. Mm -hmm. Some of them definitely do not, right? Some of them are like Dorothy. You sort of have to get married. You have your kids. You live your life. But hopefully you live long enough. You outlive your husband you get a chance to live the life you really wanted, basically. And you move somewhere else, and that's what you do. So next time, we're probably going to start with Eve of St. Martin, who sort of dovetails with her best friend, Juliana of Montcornion, 1192 to 1258. Juliana is not necessarily officially a recluse, um, which Eve is. Eve is enclosed. She's an anchoress. Um, but Juliana creates the Feast of Corpus Christi. And with Eve's help, they sort of get it off the ground. Um, and Pope Urban IV will make it a feast. Juliana has already died, but he sends a letter to Eve um, that he has done this for Juliana, uh, which is how we know that Eve died after 1264, because she's alive to get the letter when the Feast of Corpus Christi is created. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So they're in the Low Countries. Uh, the Low Countries, we usually mean Dutch-speaking. Oh, okay. And that is a high point. So actually, like... Physically low. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Flooded. <laughs> yes. That is exactly what we mean by the low countries. And that is a high, high, high point for mysticism. A high point for mysticism in the Middle Ages. Hard to stress that. The women of the low countries are freaking fantastic. Um, and there's some of them, we'll talk about next time, um, who sort of end up in other places. <laughs> Marguerite Perret um, is sort of thought of as French in a lot of ways, but she wasn't. She's from the Low Countries. Um, so there's this really interesting hotbed of sort of mysticism. Um, so in the same way that England is sort of thought of as this sort of um, place of female anchoresses, right, the Low Countries is kind of this hotbed for female mysticism. That being said, again, these practices absolutely take place across Western Europe. It just depends where the most famous records or treatises or texts end up coming from. 
right? So England just happens to have this sort of great, all these great rules, right? And the sort of great history of these women. Um, but there are just as many women who are enclosed, for example, you know, like in Rome or in other cities. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. that this isn't happening. Um, but they might not be as famous or have as many things written about them. Do we have questions? I wish we could ask our audience if they have questions. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, I do have a question. So suppose that you, you go into this cell. They are saying basically the last rites, right? They put their stamp. The bishop puts his stamp on the door. You know, I sealed this up. If you change your mind, do you get to come out? Are you, do you come back to life? Do you not change your mind? Is this like... Well, um, theoretically, no. <laughs> I mean, theoretically, you don't change your mind. But in theory, the ones that we have records of are not the ones who change their mind, right? Right. Because you don't get to be a famous anchoress if you change your mind and you're like, no, I think I... But people could become unenclosed, um, which really Christina Marquette does. She becomes unenclosed because she's enclosed for so long, people don't even know she's there, Mm -hmm. right? And then she takes over the hermit cell. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, again, that's a little weird for a woman to sort of get a hermit cell. So they're sort of like, well, maybe you should Mm -hmm. form a community. So she, in some ways, becomes unenclosed, because then she becomes the priest of a community, um, which she agrees to do to form a community to take vows. But in some ways, that's also a way of for them to police her, right? Um, because right. she doesn't sort of get to live that free life of a hermit with nobody else around. you got to have a community of women, right? That idea of um, you can become unenclosed. Yes, definitely. Um, but also... Sometimes there's almost a danger of, if there's a sense that women aren't being policed appropriately, even though they're enclosed, right? They sort of become too famous or too this or that. Um, They might be more enclosed or they might be moved or they might be, right? Sometimes there are sorts of threats of this kind of thing where you'll hear, you know, such and such a person somewhere, a bishop or something somewhere is nervous about the attention someone is getting. And so um, that sort of idea, right? There's definitely a sense also, I think, for women of enclosure kind of, despite all that clearly sort of um, paternalistic, sexist, misogynistic um, rhetoric around virginity and enclosure, for women there is frequently a sense of safety, right? The same way there would be in joining a nunnery. Sure. And as I said, some of them end up getting married and having all those kids anyway, but then finally you escape, right? Your husband dies and you're like, yes, now I can get away. Um so for a lot of women, there is that kind of sense, right? That being said, sure, I'm undoubtedly some women got it there and were like, you know, it's not worth it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, we tend not to hear about that as much. But it was mm-hmm. possible, definitely. You could become you could become unenclosed. You decide, you wake up, you're like, I think I'm claustrophobic. I think. Right. Yeah. But we'll talk about, I mean, next time, one of the things that, of course, you get is... Um, women get a lot of authority, right? So it's also a way for women to gain authority that they wouldn't otherwise have, right? Um, Particularly if you don't have the money to become an abbess, (laughs) you know. um, Right. In which case you you already have a level of authority, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But being an anchoress, you could could gain the sort of level of authority that was not really open to women. Um, A level of spiritual and religious authority that wasn't really open to women in a lot of other ways. Um, and especially because even nuns, of course, had to be sort of secluded, right? You couldn't necessarily be giving advice to people. Whereas one of the interesting things about anchoresses is that they, 
anyone can come up and ask you anything. You're not just talking to your spiritual advisor. You're not only talking to the monks who sort of have access to your nunnery. You're talking to everybody. Whoever comes up to your window and asks for help. Hmm. So there are a lot of interesting things about being an anchoress. Um, and that that position ostensibly provides that other instances, right, being a nun, for example, um, might not give you. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to our discussion of mysticism next time. That sounds like it's going to be really cool, honestly, like visions and demons and who knows what. So, yes, it's quite fun. Also, right, women founding the Feast of Corpus Christi, which a lot of people kind of forget or don't talk about. Um, and we'll talk about some really awesome women. Again, like Marguerite Perret gets burned at the stake at Paris. Um, oh. Yeah, she's super awesome. Exciting. Yep. She's brilliant and amazing. All right. Yeah. Um, so a lot of these women who, you know, I mean, it could also be a little dangerous. <laughs> yes. For a woman to have this type of authority or to claim this type of authority. Mo, mo money, mo problems, as they say. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Although in this case, right, it's spiritual, mo, spiritual authority. Yeah, most. You have less money. It doesn't work as well <laughs> in the uh, yeah in the rhyme scheme. But you give up yeah, all your okay. money, and you still have all the problems. Yeah. Mm -mm. Okay. Well, um, I think we should leave it here for tonight. But I look forward to uh, our next episode. And thanks for talking to me tonight. Yay. Anchoresses. All right. Enclosure. Anchoresses. Quarantine. And, uh, yes. Until next time, uh, we'll just say keep it medieval. Bye. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Mm -hmm.